Welcome to Securing America with me, Frank Afton. The program is a kind of owner's manual for protecting the country we love against all enemies, foreign and domestic, to the glory of God and his kingdom. We're here at CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference 2024 in the outskirts of Washington, D.C. We're continuing to, well, try to find some of the best, the smartest, the most interesting, the most important individuals in this amazing company. And I'm privileged to be able to present to you for the first time, Rick Martin. I say it's the first time because I only met him yesterday, but he is one of the people who I think is making a real difference in this country. And I'm anxious to see if we can't help him make an even bigger difference at a moment when his help is enormously needed. Rick is the president and the CEO of a company called Microgen DX, based in Lubbock, Texas. And we're gonna have a fascinating story about, um, well, both the work he's doing at the moment and the potential that it could really make a huge contribution to our ability to contend with a whole variety of diseases, viruses and bacteria and fungi that are not being properly and promptly analyzed and therefore not being efficiently treated. And it's a delight to have a chance to say, welcome to Securing America, sir. Good to have you with us and thank you for what you do. Well, thank you, Frank, for helping us get the word out and the message out about this breakthrough technology that can really make a difference in people's lives. And uh, we, we need all the help we can get to make, bring awareness that this technology is now available. Well, part of what I want to talk with you about is that it's a breakthrough technology, but it's not exactly a new technology. First of all, tell us about the nature of what you do, and then we'll get into the story about how long you've been doing it, and it still isn't getting the attention and use it deserves. We're, we are a high-complexity lab that focuses strictly on molecular techniques to identify microorganisms, so bacteria, fungus, virus, as, as you stated. And we're able to now identify bacteria and fungus by their DNA. So just like you and I have our own unique DNA, every single microorganism has its own unique DNA. Up to this point, we have relied in medicine on traditional culture techniques. So you have to grow the bacteria. The word culture means to, to grow. And so when you go to your physician, and if, if it's a, a woman with a recurrent UTI that won't go away, tract infections, yeah, or you might have a respiratory tract or a sinus infection, you might have an infected implant in your knee, and the doctor has to understand what microbes are causing that infection. And when they have to rely In order to treat, treat it them. properly, because some antibiotics will have no effect, some may even have a negative effect. Exactly right? right. I think the general population has an understanding that when they go to the doctor, give me an antibiotic. Well, the doctor needs to know which antibiotic to, right. to because their mechanisms of how they work are different. It could be what we call a gram negative or a gram positive, an aerobe. And they need to know that to be able to put you on the right antibiotic. And the trouble with doing cultures is it takes time to grow these things. Is that right? Not only time, but the biggest issue is we now know because of our, the science and DNA evidence that only 1% of all known microbes can be readily grown in petri dishes or in culture. So medicine is really only seeing the tip of the iceberg in terms of microbes that have been causing these infections and they have resulted in them having to treat blindly or we call empirically. And so if I've treated a UTI with this medicine and it works eight out of 10 times, I'll try that. What about the 2% that it doesn't, it doesn't work on? And what that translates into is impact on people's lives and health Misery. obviously, but also in some cases, Death. survival. Yes. So DNA is a big thing. Um, it seems like a no-brainer if you could do that kind of analysis that you'd prefer to do it, especially if you can get all of the various critters that are yes. out there. Yes. And I understand that you can also do it far faster yes. than you can grow even the things that grow. So if all of that is true, and you've had that on offer now for some time, what's the problem? Why aren't we doing this all over the place? Well, one, the perception from the medical community and the, even in the scientific community is it's very difficult to sequence DNA from a microbe. 
And that's based on 10 years ago where a university would take a month to sequence a sample. Well, that's not practical if I have to make a decision as to what antibiotic to put you on. I can't wait a month. And so the, the, the time period and then the cost. The cost was always in the thousands of dollars. And the few competitors that I have in the space are charging thousands of dollars. So what we've been able to do is bring the time down to three and a half days and bring the price point down to less than the cost of a culture at $350 to do. And that's what Medicare actually will, will approve this. So it is even, it's even covered by the government in terms of Medicare plans. So the barrier now has been, how do we get the word out to educate the, the community that, hey, we've overcome those barriers. We've, we've found a way to get it done faster, less expensive, and we already know it's far more accurate. Is it also the case that you could reduce the days involved in doing your analysis yes. to a far shorter time? Yeah, I, th I think it'll, as, as, as anything in com the computer world and, and programming, we've seen that as time goes on, things get faster, less expensive, and that's going to be the same thing in this space. So, as I understand it, there is another issue that has been causing less than universal adoption of this approach, uh, and that is the insurance companies. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what the problem is with that? I, I would think this would be something they would welcome if it reduces dramatically the costs of treating people because you're not treating them with the wrong medication and then maybe having them get sicker and need a lot more expensive treatment. What am I missing here? Yeah, exactly. If Actually, if, if we could get the, to the insurance companies, the executive leadership, and they would look at the science and look at the evidence of in terms of reducing costs by getting the diagnosis correct on the first visit, not having to pay for another visit, another antibiotic, and more suffering, they would see there's evidence now to support that that is exactly the case. But they, getting them to move and getting them to accept that is extremely difficult. And most of the commercial insurance plans just want to label this as, quote, experimental investigational. When there's so much published research that out there that, and that's because essentially they're greedy. They but, want to make more money. And they but think, that's the thing I don't get, yeah. Rick. And, and we're talking, of course, with Rick Martin of Microgen DX. If they're greedy, the economics of this seem so clearly to be arguing in favor of getting it right the first time to say nothing of all of the costs that are associated with people getting really sick and, and perhaps even dying. So is the problem not getting to the people in the C-suites of these companies uh, and the green eye shade guys below them are greedy in the very short term? Is that? I think it's, it's, also, it's also the way our healthcare system is set. So if you look at the insurance companies, you have the big five, the Humanas, the Aetnas, the Cygnas. They are literally in with the two major laboratories, LabCorp and Quest. So they, have, they don't care what diagnostic testing LabCorp provides for their members. They just pay them a per member per month amount. And they, they want to keep that amount low. And so the laboratories say, okay, well, we're going to give you that, that price, but you can't use other laboratories. Don't go out of and go looking for other laboratories. The if cartel. Do, yeah. The if you cartel. Do, we're going to charge you more. Rick Martin, this is such an interesting topic. I, I wish I knew more about it, could ask you more intelligent questions about it, but I do want to say, from what you've told me, both in the course of this conversation and off air, this is a no-brainer. And I very much hope that we can help you bring this to the attention of the people in the industry with the support, I understand, of the FDA, no yes. less, to get this more effective technology in the hands of the people who need it so they get treated properly the first time around. Rick, we're going to have you back, I know, and I look forward to our next visit. But in the meantime, thank you for what you do. Thank you to all of the people who I hope will take to heart the need to do this right in the future. Stay tuned. We'll be right back with more after this.
This is Frank Gaffney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Joe Biden took to a late-night comedy show yesterday to declare that Israel is open to a ceasefire with Hamas for the month of Ramadan. Unfortunately, while this idea is a contemptibly bad joke, it's no laughing matter. As Carolyn Glick has pointed out, those negotiating this deal know it's a trap designed to save Hamas. If a ceasefire is agreed, Team Biden won't allow Israel to resume hostilities and finish the jihadist group's destruction. Worst yet, it will embolden Israel's many enemies to do precisely that to her. The president is clearly more concerned with today's primary in Michigan, in which pro-Hamas activists are urging voters to oppose Biden's re-election than he is with Israel's survival. Such policies may play well with Islamist and other Democrat supporters of genocidal terrorists, but not the vast majority of either Israelis or Americans. This is Frank Gaffney. We're back. We're visiting at CPAC with the best and the brightest. And when we are, we are going to be talking with people like Brian Kennedy. Brian, of course, is no stranger to this program. We happen to have caught up with him in person, which is a rare treat, in the environs of the Conservative Political Action Conference outside Washington, D.C. He's blown in from the left coast for the purpose of helping educate the people here about what we need to know about, well, that coast, yes, of course, but the country in between, and nobody does it better than Brian Kennedy. He is the president of the American Strategy Group and, of course, the chairman of the Committee on the Present Danger China. I'm proud to be his wingman in that role. Brian Kennedy, welcome back to Securing America. Thank you, Brian. Great, great to have great you, my to friend. Great to be with you, as always. The pleasure is truly mine. You did a wonderful job yesterday in a little breakout session that we had. It's Karen Sigeman. Uh, one of our great partners in our Sovereignty Coalition, Committee on the Present Danger, China, and so much more, did a program we called World War Z. And you talked about the larger problem, of course, but you also spoke about a specific issue. And I want to make sure we visit with you about that today because I think it's of surpassing importance, especially your ideas about what we do about election integrity this fall. Yeah, no, thank, thank you, Frank. and. Uh, you gave a brilliant talk about, as you always do, what is what is the... the we qualify as having a mutual admiration. No, every, but everybody who watches the show knows that, right? So, yeah, so, but but still, it, 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 it bears saying because most of your guests probably are not going to do that. Uh, they may admire you, but they weren't going to say it. And everyone knows that, um, look, the, the existential threat to this country is communist China. No one describes that better than you do. My, my particular interest right now, my concern right now, is about election integrity. Communist China spends $16 billion a year, as I often say, in intelligence and influence operations in this country. They have the desire... I suspect that's an underestimate. Yes, but, but let's just say, let's say it were, it were a tenth of that. That would still be an enormous amount of money, and, and I'm sure it is more. But they have the capacity to influence American politics. Here in Washington, D.C., they bought up the big law firms, the big PR firms. They spread money everywhere, journalists, you name it. They, elite capture. This whole, uh, yes, and, and they have captured these elites everywhere in our society. One of the things that is so important, especially at a political action conference, is can you have real politics if an election can be stolen? And what we saw in 2020, in my estimation, is an inadequate voting system that allowed for a massive amount of election fraud. Now, we're told there was no cheating, that uh, it was the most election. secure election, fairest election, fairest election ever. Yes. And, and you exactly. don't buy that? No, I don't, because you made a serious study of it. I went to Arizona and Nevada, among other places, just to try to understand the system. And my immediate analysis was, this is a system built for honest people. Honest people, our, our voting system. If everybody behaves as honest citizens, the thing works perfectly. We have communist China, who has a deep interest in influencing American yeah, politics. I mean, it has a deep interest. It had a deep interest in 2020 of getting rid of Donald Trump. It has a deep interest in 2024 of making sure he doesn't get back to office. 
in the seven swing states. And you're saying they're not honest, let alone I, not I, Americans I, and yeah, voters. One, they're not Americans, obviously. Uh, and two, they're at war with us. And so, just given the definition of war, they will do what's ever in their power to win. Do you think they did that in 2020 as well? Uh, I think they did a lot to corrupt the system, whether it was the acquisition of some of the voting machine companies or influence of the voting machine companies or the fact that in 2020 there was the ubiquitous use, near ubiquitous use of mail-in balloting. We don't know what their role could have been. Did they want Donald Trump to win? No. In, 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 as you and I have documented, in May of 2019, when they declared a people's war against the United States, it was a war. And within six months of that, COVID was spreading. Within six months of that, we were in lockdown. And within six months of that, an election, in my judgment, was stolen. But the mere fact that we're using... Toppling the guy they did not want to yes, win, bringing to power a man who our colleague Sam Fattis has described as a controlled asset of the Chinese Communist Party. Absolutely. Could that possibly have been a coincidence? It looks like there was high government policy at work on the part of Communist China to achieve that. And it used to be a common, uh, a, there, was, there was a common agreement among Republicans and Democrats that mail-in balloting was rife with fraud. Now, in, in fact, Jimmy Carter, Jimmy former Carter president of the United Baker. States, James right. Baker, former right. Secretary of State, right. someone, said that. No, it was an agreement. in an official report. Right. right. And now, now here we are, almost four years later. We have a big national presidential election, and in the seven swing states that will likely decide the election, there is still going to be the near universal use of mail-in balloting. And uh, as I was talking about on our panel yesterday, the ability of communist China to print up ballots themselves that will look near perfect and to vote them from voters who rarely vote. They have, it, that would be a couple million dollar project on their part it, it, if they really wanted to do that. And we have zero safeguards in place today. Now we have nine months to secure this, but if we don't secure this, the ability of a state actor to interfere in an American election it is a scandal of epic proportions that this government is not trying to stop that. Yeah. Well, let me ask you this, Brian, because we're here at a conservative right. political right. action conference. Right. I think it's fair to say probably the vast majority of people here are Republicans. Right. Let's just look at those seven swing states. Right. Am I right that some of them have people in influential positions who are not Democrats and who are not dishonest in the sense of wanting Democrats to win and doing anything they can right. to help them. Right. They're Republicans. Right. And yet we still have voting systems. Again, I mentioned Sam right. Fattis. Right. He's working right. Pennsylvania right. tirelessly. Right. And Republicans in the state legislature have been the impediment for much of the past uh, several years. So A, what's up with that? And B, What's Brian Kennedy's recommendation about what we do to prevent what seems to be an absolutely predictable train wreck? Well, I, I don't, this will be kind of an unsatisfying answer. I don't have a perfect description, but I do know that we're not going to do anything if people don't know about it. I think there are a lot of Americans today who think everything is going to go along just swimmingly. And we're going to well, have- they assume things have been corrected. From well, they assume the things past, have been right? corrected, number one. but. I think what I'm arguing with the communist Chinese and their ability to, pr to print up and insert into the system, get into the system, a perfectly looking cast ballot, it doesn't matter where you had all Republicans running those seven swing states. If you have mail-in balloting in a, and they look perfect and you vote the people who never vote, then the, who's going to object? And at the end of the day, or even, well, that's the key point. We won't know in 2024, and we don't know, we've never really investigated that about 2020. And so, so long as we have voting this way, Americans are going to be very skeptical of the results. And that's no way to run a republic. No, well, it's no way to keep a republic, right. more to the point. Right. Uh, well, if, if we right. run it into the ground, we're, we're create, not going to have We're going to create the conditions for civil war yeah. if Americans think another election's been stolen. That's a decided prospect in all right. of this. Uh, of which the communist Chinese would happily be delighted. Well, and, and we don't have time to do justice to the topic, right. but one of the other pieces right. that I know we're both right. concerned about is the 
insinuation into this country of divisions worth of People's Liberation Army personnel who could actually help wage that civil war, right, uh, right. maybe surreptitiously, right. maybe right. helping right. others. So it looks like our elites, our political elites on the American left, have left us vulnerable to attack. Yeah. And the American people will see that as well. And they will find that unacceptable. Completely unacceptable. Right. Brian Kennedy, thank you. Thank you, uh, especially, Brian, I think, for the work that you are leading in the Committee on the Present Danger of China. It could hardly be more important, especially for the reasons that we've just been talking about. We're going to be considering that and much more with other guests coming up momentarily. I hope that you will stay tuned for more here at Securing America at CPAC 2024. After night in cities across the country, black-garbed assailants clash with police in the streets, smash windows, and throw Molotov cocktails in an effort to destroy police stations, federal courthouses, and local businesses, all in the name of anti-fascism. Most Americans are now, sadly, all too aware of the movement known as Antifa. But where did they come from? What do they want? And how do we stop their campaign of violent mayhem? The Center for Security Policy Press is proud to present Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat. This new book looks at the history, ideology, organization, finances, and strategy of Antifa and provides an in-depth analysis for law enforcement officers, policymakers, and the general public. From street fighting tactics of the Black Bloc to fundraising by prominent left-wing foundations, Unmasking Antifa is the go-to guide to understand this elusive and dangerous threat. Get your copy of Unmasking Antifa, Five Perspectives on a Growing Threat at Amazon.com. Welcome back. We are continuing our conversations with the best and the brightest, I like to think, at CPAC 2024. And very much at the top of that batting order, for my purposes, is Dr. Merrill Nass. She is a medical practitioner based in Maine who came to public attention most recently for her courageous efforts to tell the truth about COVID-19 and to treat her patients appropriately based on her medical expertise, rather than in accordance with, well, among other things, the dictates at the time, the advice of the World Health Organization. We wanted to catch up with her here at CPAC. Uh, she's involved in not only this uh, important meeting, but also an adjacent one featuring a number of other frontline medical practitioners with the courage to stand up against the tyranny we've all been exposed to, namely the, uh, the International Crisis Summit, as it's called. Dr. Nass, welcome to Securing America. It's good to have you here in person. We've so uh, been talking from afar, but it's great to have you here. So let's start with this issue of experience that you personally had as well as your patients and yes. others that you know you are following. In the context of COVID-19 and what the World Health Organization told us about it, including how we must care for people who have it. Well, COVID-19, you know, is a disease. So doctors are supposed to treat patients in consultation with the patient come up with treatments that are pleasing to the patient, explain the risks and benefits of the available treatments, and, and that's sort of how medicine should work. Um, and that provides solving the problem. Yes, on. exactly, and prevention if possible. Now it turned out for COVID that both hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, and ivermectin had the ability to prevent the disease as well as treat it. So they, and they were very safe drugs when used correctly. Um, but the WHO 
and the federal government did not want us to do that, as well as many other governments, and they took st unprecedented steps pretended that it was illegal to actually use those drugs when it wasn't. There were licensed drugs, doctors are licensed, patients can, you know, just because they're off-label, which means they weren't specifically licensed for that purpose, well, guess what, you know, most other drugs are also off-label when you use them for different purposes. So the WHO gave us bad advice on that, discouraged their use, encouraged the use of vaccines that turned out didn't work and were very dangerous. Um, but the WHO encouraged lockdowns, encouraged school closures, encouraged masks, and really had no scientific basis for any of this. And in fact, there was a plan. The WHO had an existing plan for respiratory pandemics and threw it away. We don't know why that happened. It happened in the US as well. It happened in Europe. But the WHO had a published plan, which they ignored. Now, who was giving the WHO their orders? We are assuming that was their donors. Um, but we don't know for sure. And also, um, an entity that has a lot of influence in the their Chinese world, Communist the Chinese Party. Communist Party. Let's not leave them out. So, Doctor, when you look at what that all translated into, how did it impact the, parent, the patient physician relationship? So, that, right. So if the government is telling you what drugs you can and can't have, there's no doctor-patient relationship, right? The, the government has now inserted itself into the exam room and said the doctors can't give informed consent. In fact, in California and, and in uh, uh, parts of Canada, they criminalized informed consent and said doctors weren't allowed to tell the patients about hydroxychloroquine or ivermectin. So. Close to home. Right, and, and, and vaccines. Right. So it wasn't exactly criminal. So talking about it wasn't criminalized in Maine. In fact, I was allowed, I legally prescribed those drugs according to rules the governor had issued. But they didn't like it because I spoke out and, you know, had an audience. Um, but the most important thing for people to remember is that they, the government's plan killed people. Hundreds of thousands of Americans died because they could not access useful treatment. They couldn't even learn that useful treatment existed. And the CDC published in 2005 that chloroquine worked against um, SARS-1. And the NIH published in 2014 that 66 different drugs killed SARS-1 and MERS. And Fauci and the, uh, the whole government health apparatus knew they had drugs that worked and withheld them from the entire population. And we don't have time to speculate on why that was, but let me just stipulate that I believe it was because they had conflicts of interest. They wanted to promote these vaccines, so-called vaccines. But the point is, whatever that motivation was, we saw that this World Health Organization, in its advisory capacity, was incompetent and arguably malfeasant. So why would we want to entrust still right. more power and authority to them. Exactly. And how much power and authority is now in prospect if uh, they have their way? So they have no expertise. They have less expertise than a small European country. There aren't that many doctors that work there. They clearly knew nothing about the pandemic and gave us the absolutely wrong advice that caused, you know, probably a million or more deaths. Um, what the, and because that organization has been co-opted to carry out the agenda of Bill Gates and its other funders, why would we expect any better next time? In fact, the documents that they've come up with are even worse than what they had before because they're legalizing things that were done and will make them worse. So they're actually requiring nations to pass laws so that they can surveil all our social media and that governments can censor them. That's a, that's a violation of the First Amendment. And the Fourth Amendment, uh, illegal search. Um, they uh, are demanding that nations around the world pass laws so that they can roll out vaccines and drugs without licensing them, without testing them, and that there would be no liability for those products when people are injured and killed by them. So, th I mean, this is a WHO that's just gone mad. Compounded by a problem that you have been very, I think, visionary in warning about, and that is uh, this provision, and I can't remember whether it's in the 
international health regulations that are being amended or whether it's in the pandemic treaty or both. But this idea that we want to share, not only we want to share, we must share yes. all of these novel diseases as widely as possible. You've got a background in trying to figure out, yes. you know, biological warfare activities taking place around the world. What could possibly go wrong with this idea? The WHO has actually openly said that nations must go search out potential pandemic pathogens. They must then create laboratories to um, decode them, put the sequences online so any hacker can then download how to make a biological weapon and make these broadly available through the WHO, its biohub, and its pathogen access and benefit system. This is insane, and believe it or not, in the latest version of the treaty, which only came out a week ago, the WHO says that Tedros will be able to appoint scientists who will then supervise gain-of-function research in the world. Gain-of-function research is making pandemic pathogens more deadly, more transmissible, and the WHO wants to run that. This is illegal under the Biological Weapons Convention, and they actually use the words gain of function and supervise and handpick. So you touched on something that I don't think has gotten enough attention either. I mean, this whole thing hasn't. But you mentioned that the treaty's latest version has just been rolled out, and this is supposed to be approved three months from now. The International Health Regulations amendments, I'm told, may not be made available at all until they're voted upon. This whole thing stinks to high heavens yes. that they are secretively pursuing these arrangements. I think confident that they have to do that because if they're exposed to the light of day, exactly. people like us will take them apart and the public will not Absolutely. have their, any part of it. The so, only way so. they can get these through is through secrecy. If nobody understands what's in the amendments and the treaty, um, then you know they can quietly bring them in. People are not going along, however, because there is nothing good for people in these documents. They are just a way to put a noose around your neck, bring in more, more pandemics, control the, the drugs we have access to, and force untested vaccines on us. Um, among other things. And, and, and violate our Constitution in a variety of ways. In, in, in at least five different ways. Yeah. So what do we do about it? What, what is the call to action coming so, out of this meeting? So there's one way to solve this problem in the United States, and that is to get the states on board, because health is a state authority according to our Constitution. And we can do this with either a resolution by the state legislature, um, by the attorney general signing on to a letter saying we will not turn over authority for our citizens' health to the WHO, or the governors can make a declaration or issue an executive order. So at the state level, we have more than half the states run by Republicans. They have to look at these documents and say, no, we are not bringing this into our state the same way they did with the natural asset corporations and the same way they told Biden, you don't get to open, open the Texas border. Texas has the right to defend itself, and we go, we're all going along with that. So I think we can have a hat trick. Well, and this will be our third this, win. This is our object, needless to say. And, and I just want to emphasize this point, that we have it within our power, I to believe, stop this. to stop this, to defund it, to depart from the World Health Organization, as I'm fond of saying, to defang the World yes. Health Organization. Dr. Merrill Nass, thank you very much for your time and your expertise and your courage in fighting this. You've been punished by the state of Maine's uh, medical authorities for doing so. We respect you all the more for that reason. Come back to us again soon. I want the rest of you to come back on the other side of this very short break. Stay tuned.
This is Frank Gaffney with the Secure Freedom Minute. Joe Biden took to a late-night comedy show yesterday to declare that Israel is open to a ceasefire with Hamas for the month of Ramadan. Unfortunately, while this idea is a contemptibly bad joke, it's no laughing matter. As Carolyn Glick has pointed out, those negotiating this deal know it's a trap designed to save Hamas. If a ceasefire is agreed, Team Biden won't allow Israel to resume hostilities and finish the jihadist group's destruction. Worst yet, it will embolden Israel's many enemies to do precisely that to her. The president is clearly more concerned with today's primary in Michigan, in which pro-Hamas activists are urging voters to oppose Biden's re-election than he is with Israel's survival. Such policies may play well with Islamist and other Democrat supporters of genocidal terrorists, but not the vast majority of either Israelis or Americans. This is Frank Gaffney. We're at CPAC, and we are continuing our curation of this very distinguished company. And I'm very pleased to say we have in person a man we usually have to talk to half a world away, and often under very difficult circumstances like, oh, the middle of the night, for example. His name is Colonel Grant Newsom. Newsom, as I understand how it's actually supposed to be pronounced, I mangle it every time. The Colonel is a Marine Corps veteran. He has distinguished himself not only in the uniform of the United States Marines, but also as a Foreign Service officer, as a businessman doing uh, entrepreneurial things out in the Western Pacific. He's the author most recently of a terrific book, When China Attacks, A Warning to America. He is also a senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy, an essayist, and a just jolly good fellow all the way around. Colonel, it's good yeah, to have you with you. us, sir. Glad to be here. Welcome, yeah. as always. Um, Grant, there is so much to talk about at the moment. Uh, you participated in a, one of our webinars, which we had just last week, about the nature of the threat we're facing from China possibly now being ramped up uh, over two islands near the Chinese shore that have been controlled basically since the revolution by Taiwan. Uh, you took a somewhat rosier view than I thought we might about um, the Chinese probably not opting to take those islands as a precursor to an attack on Taiwan and maybe on us. Walk us through your thinking about why that might be. Well, I think that the Chinese are going to weigh the potential damage, the downsides, the downside risk that they might face. And they're going to face some economic pressure, financial sanctions, economic sanctions in the event that they were to take those two islands. They know that. But keep in mind that Xi Jinping has been trying to sanctions proof his economy. He's been storing up oil, storing up food. They've been increasing their local manufacturing so they don't have to buy as much from overseas. He's been very clear about what he intends to do. And that's like you're getting ready for a fight. Uh, now also, you're going to get the Europeans who will have to try to do something. Uh, and they're going to put sanctions, of course, on China if they seize this territory. And so there's going to be some pressure put on China. But also there's another uh, point, is that the Chinese have overseas interests as they call them. So think of all of their businesses overseas, all of the, the export, you know, these huge Chinese container ships that go overseas and unload stuff, sell it, and earn foreign currency. Um, all of that is vulnerable. And China doesn't have the ability to militarily protect them. So they're going to look at that as well. But then they're going to ask, well, okay, yeah, we might suffer some, some problems, 
but you're going to find that much of the world, many countries are going to say, uh, in the event China moves, they're going to say, well, it's just a Chinese thing. Um, it's a domestic matter, so we don't really have an issue in this. And more countries are going to do that than are going to say, hey, wait a minute, we have to really stop this. <clears throat> and that's going to be a problem. So actually, um, I'm actually thinking that the calculation from Xi's perspective is actually looking towards moving. And the thing that's going to decide it is the state of the United States. And they look at that and they see a, you know, a president who, if he was your grandfather, you would be very worried. He's the president. And Even more worrying. That's exactly it. And they're going to say, well, you know, America has got led by, unfortunately, a president who is um, not in a sound, completely sound mind, or certainly looks that way. And we have an election coming up, and this election is going to be a nightmare. I expect rioting to start in the streets uh, in the summer, certainly before the um, before the election. And so China and America, as China knows, is the only country that can stop them, the only country that can inflict enough pain on China to cause them to back off, and the only country that can rally the rest of the civilized world. And if America is in a state of confusion, well, from China's perspective, actually, my conclusion is that they may be thinking, this is our chance. And that's I do, but I think down. where I would, so that's actually where I come down on it. But I also think they may not just take these two little islands. They may think now is the time to go for everything. Oh, and I, I think 100%. that is more like Yeah, no, no. And, and I didn't mean to suggest that I thought they would just satisfy themselves with those two little islands, but rather that that would be the, the openings mm -hmm. foray. But just to drill down on several of the things you said, because they're very important. The Chinese Communist Party know a lot about Joe Biden, and it's not just his dementia or declining mental capabilities, if you will. They have compromised him. I think there's no doubt about it. Um, our colleague and friend Sam Fattis calls him a controlled asset of the Chinese Communist Party. And the trouble is it's not really just this doddering old man any longer, it's the people running him. Yeah. And they too seem to be compromised as well, as best we can tell who they are. But does that not further reinforce their calculation that this is the time to move? If this guy works for them, or at least can be you know, told what to do, that would seem to me to be an irresistible temptation. Uh, it, it, it is, unfortunately, uh, and it's if, say you work for an intelligence service and you've got a very prominent politician official to take $30 million from you and his, him and his family, you wouldn't really care all that much, especially because you know the family is tight, that if you'd done that, it would be the, the biggest coup ever. And if it's your main enemy, the main country in the world, it's even better. So controlled asset or not, it's close enough to that. And this is, and it's not just, as you say, it's not just him, around him. Many of his top people handling foreign affairs have taken money from China. They've done business with China. They have advertised themselves as able to open doors in China. And then when they went into the administration, they suddenly removed it from their websites, from their, their resumes. And it, from China, Beijing's perspective, Boy, it's never looked better. And I'm not saying that with any glee. Um, we were in a fix. Colonel, we have to take a short break. When we come back, I want to talk with you a little bit more about other calculations that are operating here, internal to China itself and internal to the United States as well. We'll be right back with Colonel Grant Newsom, United States Marine Corps retired, one of our distinguished contributors to various programs we do at the Committee on the Present Danger China also a senior fellow of the Center for Security Policy. We're very proud of him. Stay tuned for much more right after this. Welcome back, and we are visiting with Colonel Grant Newsom here at the Conservative Political Action Conference outside Washington, D.C. Uh, he is one of the stars, I would argue, of this 
community, um, senior fellow of our Center for Security Policy, as well as a key member of our Committee on the Present Danger of China. So his past service to our country is very much continuing, and we're deeply grateful for our association with him. Colonel, we were talking about the possibility that the Chinese may be ready to go for it against uh, Taiwan. Um, I think something you were kind of leading up to is that, well, not so much leading up to, you said, that this may be seen as the moment. How would you characterize, as a student of what's going on inside China itself, a whole nother consideration for Xi Jinping, which is that he has youth unemployment skyrocketing. He has the banking system collapsing. He has the real estate market collapsing. He has the stock market collapsing. He has a demographic disaster on his hands. And by the way, an awful lot of military-aged young men who don't have any women who it might be helpful to go off someplace else and maybe get killed, but fight for the motherland. Could all of those things be interpreted as anything other than a further inducement to act aggressively now? I'm afraid so. Uh, this is almost predictable behavior for this kind of regime. You know, it's not like these guys are going to just turn over power to another party and say, well, we had our chance and go retire to Boca Raton. Uh, this is, you keep power or else you lose your life. Uh, that's the da real downside. So they look at their internal situation, and they've got all the troubles which you suggested. Uh, and their reputation worldwide, at least in the civilized world, is not very good. Uh, and they may think, well... Increasingly, the not-so-civilized world either. I think people some, are realizing these guys extent, are bad actors. There is that. You saw it in Argentina just the, uh, recently, where they elected a guy who's not very keen on China, even though uh, everyone thought, well, China's in, China's got Argentina in the back. So they've got all these problems, and they just might say, well, the one way to rally this country is to start a war, and particularly over Taiwan. Uh, and because many Chinese on the mainland do think that Taiwan is part of China, it's not, but it has a way of resonating, this argument. So all these problems exist. And I think it does actually sort of uh, push Xi towards a decision to attack. But the one thing to note, I think, Frank, is that with all of the problems he's got, you have to ask yourself, what are we doing to capitalize on this? Are we encouraging these things? Are we using them as leverage to weaken China, to cause it to pull back or to be so focused domestically that they can't do anything overseas? And we're not. We have never done it, except for a few years during the Trump administration. Otherwise, our mantra is don't provoke China, don't do anything the Chinese Communist Party won't like. Right. Um, I want to come back to that, because that's such an important point. But before I do, just a further word on the possibility that if the Chinese do decide to go for it against Taiwan, as you say, that they will exploit an awful lot of measures that they have taken pains to put into place to knock us out of the war. And that may mean even, according to senior former FBI executives and even Christopher Wray to some extent, the director of the FBI, um, acting against us catastrophically. And I'm just trying to figure out um, whether it's these People's Liberation Army personnel, they seem to have been pouring across our borders, or these bio labs, or these um, guys on Wall Street who are financing them, and the kind of infrastructure attacks that they would presumably make to take down Wall Street and everything else. I know you're concerned about all this. How much does this enter into the calculation for Xi that this is a doable do? Mm -hmm. Well, he only needs, when he looks at it, he just needs a few weeks to get Taiwan or to be, to go after Taiwan and have enough of a stranglehold that America and the civilized world won't do anything. And he just needs a little amount of time. So if he is going to do something, expect the electricity in America, expect the AT to go off, the water systems to have trouble, 
ATMs aren't going to work. Communications are going to be down. I expect our satellite network to not be functioning like it is. And you just have to do this long enough to get enough of enough of a sort of, a, sort of space, both time and physically, that you can get in and get Taiwan, present a fait accompli, and you know, and eventually count on Washington and all your friends to just say, well, let's go back to normal. Okay, we've gotten this, we've gotten over this. Let's get, let's continue as we were. And so expect, uh, and, and besides that as well, you get these fifth columnists in America will be conducting attacks all over the place. Uh, we, so. we may not have a choice, is my point. Yeah. That, uh, whether oh. it's their friends and others mm -hmm. saying, no, this, never mind, mm -hmm. yeah. or the controlled yeah. asset in the mm -hmm. White House, we simply may be unable to operate, especially since much of mm -hmm. what we have to do is project mm -hmm. power from the mainland of the United States. Oh, yeah, that's right. It, it's uh, We could even say to the military, well, look, go protect us, go do your thing, go carry out the plan. And we may find that we can't do it. Um, in fact, if our, you know, our financial system is such, um, just even as it is now, that we may not have the money to actually buy the gas, the fuel, to get the Navy into the Pacific. It is about that bad. Well, and whether that fuel would be available. If you can't get it out of the ground, it's into the ships, or into the airplanes, quite right. you're not you can, going anywhere. Yeah, you can't load ports, you can't load ships, because the cranes are made in China. Right. They're not so working. We have less than a minute. Mm -hmm. What would you, very briefly, counsel we be doing now to enhance deterrence and to discourage, take advantage of the difficulties the Chinese have? What I would do now is I would cut off the flow of U.S. dollars, cut off the flow of investment into China. They absolutely must have foreign exchange. I would cut off the flow of technology or reduce it so much that they know that they cannot survive or just the cost is too high. I would force Wall Street to remember that they are Americans and not traitors. That is going to take some serious reminding. Yeah, that's take it. Yeah. about it right away. Mm -hmm. Colonel, listen, thank you for your time as okay. well as your great expertise. We prize mm -hmm. you as a friend and colleague mm -hmm. tremendously. Mm -hmm. We're going to be saying goodbye for today. I hope you will join us again tomorrow at more of these best, best of CPAC, I hope, but also more of securing America. Stay tuned.